listening to an audio sermon from Fort William Baptist Church. Thanks for joining with us today. This year, we have begun a new series titled, Your Kingdom Come, based on the Old Testament book of 1st and 2nd Samuel. This is a book that calls us to action. The text prods and pokes us with this great question, will you submit your life to the Son of God? It's a call to humble ourselves before this King and trust in Jesus. For more information, please visit our website at www.fortwilliambaptistchurch.com. Thanks for joining with us today. Brothers and sisters, would you grab your Bibles this morning and open them up to the book of 1 Samuel. We're in the middle of a series on First and Second Samuel, and we're just traveling through the, the story, and this week we're on chapter 15, and we're going to look at the whole of the chapter, starting in verse 1, working through verse 35. So would you turn there with me? Hear the word of God. And Samuel said to Saul, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts. I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Saul summoned the people and numbered them at Telaim, 200,000 men on foot and 10,000 men of Judah. And Saul came to the city of Amalek and lay in wait in the valley. Then Saul said to the Kenites, Go, depart, go down from among the Amalekites, lest I destroy you with them. For you showed kindness to all the people of Israel when they came up out of Egypt. So the Kenites departed from the Amalekites, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havelah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and of the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. And all that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. The word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning and was told Samuel. Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord, I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They've brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop, I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, 
sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned for I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Now therefore, please pardon my sin and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. And Samuel said to Saul, I will not return with you, for you have rejected the word of the Lord, and the Lord has rejected you from being king over Israel. As Samuel turned to go away, Saul seized the skirt of his robe, and it tore. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day, and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. And he said, I have sinned, yet honor me now before the elders of my people and before Israel, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord your God. So Samuel turned back after Saul, and Saul bowed before the Lord. And Samuel said, Bring here to me Agag, the king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully, and Agag said, Surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, As your sword has made women childless, so shall your mother be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. And Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went up to his house in Gabeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he made Saul king over Israel. Well, Father, we do ask now that you would bless the reading and the preaching of the word, and that you would work in our hearts now as we receive it. Amen. Working through the book of First and Second Samuel is a bit like experiencing a partly cloudy day. So think of a summer day, go out into your backyard, and the sun is shining, but there's also these formations of clouds, and they're just moving through the sky, one formation after another. And so there you are, sitting in your backyard, and for a moment, the sun is shining on you. It's bright, it's warm, you can feel it, it's enjoyable, but then... A formations of, of clouds move through and they, they block out the sun and it becomes noticeably darker and noticeably cooler. And our experience of the Lord in First and Second Samuel is a bit like experiencing a partly cloudy day in the summer. At moments in the story of First and Second Samuel, the, the sun is shining brightly, and when the sun is shining brightly, we can see exactly what the Lord is doing. We find the Lord intervening in the lives of his people. Coming near to his servants, we find the Lord speaking, and when he speaks, he reveals his will, his plan, his desires. We find the Lord dealing with the the congregation of his people. The Lord thunders before his people and convicts them of sin, and then he forgives his people, and he draws near to them and reunites with them. We find the Lord dealing with his enemies. He he confounds them and confuses them, and he, he destroys them. And when the sun is shining, we can see the Lord and we know what he's up to. But at other times in the story, a formation of clouds come over and everything gets dark and cooler. And we know and we've been taught that the Lord is the sovereign king. And we know and we've been taught that the Lord brings all things to pass. 
But still, when the clouds come and cover up the sun, we're, we're still left confused at times, bewildered, and we're left asking, well, what is the Lord doing here in the midst of this story? Because at times in the midst of the story, all sorts of things happen that, that put question marks in our heads. We find wicked men prospering. At times in the story, we find evil men growing stronger and stronger at power. At times in the story, we find the enemies of God just running over the people of God and just grinding their faces into the ground. At times, we look at God's people and they're just wandering about here to there. And in all of this, we wonder, what is the Lord up to? What is he doing here? Well, we read 1 Samuel chapter 15, and 1 Samuel chapter 15 is one of those moments where the clouds part and the sun shines through. This chapter gives us a clear and extended look at the Lord and what he is like. In this chapter, we get to see the Lord's heart, the Lord's mind, the Lord's will, and the way the Lord works with humanity. And there's a reason why we get to see so much of the Lord in chapter 15. We get to see so much of the Lord in chapter 15 because the Lord speaks. Chapter 15 is dominated by the word of the Lord. And so the chapter begins with the word of the Lord. Samuel comes, and he's a prophet. He speaks on behalf of the Lord. We have to understand that when Samuel speaks, he's not speaking of his own private opinion or his own private thoughts. He's a mouthpiece of God. So in chapter 15, verse 2, Samuel comes and he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts. And that's what a good prophet does. He says, Thus says the Lord. And as we look into 1 Samuel chapter 15, we see that the Lord has an audience in mind. The Lord is not just speaking into the wind to some indiscriminate audience. He's speaking to Saul, the king of Israel. The Lord has a message for this king. And as we look into the text of Scripture, we find that Saul has a really simple job to do. He must obey everything that the Lord says to him. So look at verse 1. Samuel says to Saul, listen to the words of the Lord. And there is a simple pattern in chapter 15, and we need to take notice of it. The Lord speaks, and then Saul responds. That's the pattern, and it happens three times in chapter 15. In verses 1 through 3, the Lord speaks to Saul. And in verses 4 through 9, Saul responds to the Lord. In verses 10 and 11, the Lord speaks again. And then in verses 12 and 15, Saul responds. Then again in verses 17 through 30, the Lord speaks. And then again in the midst of these verses, on and off again, Saul responds to what the Lord is saying to him. And so we have these three cycles. The Lord speaks, Saul responds again and again and again. And what we're going to do this morning is we're going to pay attention to this cycle. What we're going to do is we're going to look at two things. When the Lord speaks, we're going to pause and stop and ask, what is the Lord like? What is the Lord like here? What do his words reveal about his heart, his plan, his desires? And then after we look at the Lord and hear his word, we're going to turn our attention and look at, at Saul. And Saul's going to respond to the word of the Lord, and we're going to pause and we're going to consider Saul. Well, what is Saul like? What do his actions reveal about his heart? What's going to become of this man? And as we work through these three cycles, we're going to be considering ourselves in light of them and what the truth about God means for us and what the truth about Saul means for us. So let's look at the first cycle. So the Lord speaks through Samuel, and his initial word to, to, 
to Saul is a really simple, straightforward, direct word. We find it in verses 2 and verse 3. So Samuel says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. So Samuel speaks for the Lord, and the command is really simple, direct, straightforward. It's not confusing. But while it's not confusing, it is perplexing for us. It's, it's troubling. As we think about these two verses, there's, there's no way to navigate through the commands of the Lord and avoid the, the brutal nature of them. The Lord says, go and kill, strike. Strike down both man and woman, child and infant. Everything that moves and breathes must be devoted to destruction. So in these two verses, the Lord wills a complete slaughter of the Amalekites. And so the Lord has spoken, and now we ask our question, well, what do we learn about the Lord here? What is God like? And as we take in these two verses, we might be tempted to say, well, whatever is revealed about the Lord in these two verses, I don't know if I really want to know about the Lord. This is rather uncomfortable. We start to squirm because of our modern sensibilities. We say, well, this isn't a good look for the Lord. Maybe we should cover it up and move on to something else. Maybe we shouldn't even talk about it in church. But before we squirm too much, we have to investigate these words. Why would the Lord ever give this command? And so we can put our detective hats on and go investigating in the scriptures. And so we can go back in the story of the Old Testament. We can go back to Deuteronomy chapter 25. In verses 17 and 18 of that text, we hear this. Remember what Amalek did to you on the way as you came out of Egypt, how he attacked you on the way when you were faint and weary and cut off your tail, those who were lagging behind you, and he did not fear God. So what is Deuteronomy 25 talking about? Well, it's telling the story when when Israel came up out of Egypt in the Exodus story, they went to travel to Sinai to worship the Lord. And as they were traveling, they were were the weak and the old, and they they were falling behind the congregation. And what did the Amalekites do? Well, they came and they started killing the weak and the tired and the sickly, and they made war against the people of God. And so we see here in Deuteronomy 25 that the Lord has not forgotten about this wickedness and he's going to take it into account. And there's a second clue and it's in our passage. So in chapter 15, verse 18, Samuel is with Saul and he's repeating the command of the Lord to Saul and he says this, Go and devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. And so Samuel adds a bit of commentary here. He just doesn't say the Amalekites, but he says the sinners. And again, we ask the question, why does the Lord give this command? Well, it seems from chapter 15, verse 18, that this is not just a historical grudge. It is that, but it's more. Rather, we see that the Amalekites never turned away from the ways of their fathers. Up until the day of Saul, they remained sinners in their wicked ways. And so with all of this in front of us this morning, we can see something of God in this text. And what do we see? We see that God is a God of vengeance. He's a God of vengeance. The Amalekites had done a wicked thing against the Lord and against the Lord's people, and the Lord did not forget about it. And the Amalekites, what did they do? They continued in their sinful ways, never turning, never stopping, never giving up their way of sin. And so here in the life of Saul, the Lord calls Saul to go out and to carry out his vengeance against the Amalekites. 
And this is the Lord's prerogative because he is the just judge. He can judge sinners as he pleases. And so we see that this judgment is both fierce and final. And as we look at these two verses, the clouds begin to part for us and the sun shines through and we can see the Lord for who he is. Christian, this is the God you serve. You serve a God of vengeance. This is a God who will not let sin go unpunished. This is a God who does not forget about the wrongs done against him or against his people. He is a God who will not let evil run free forever. He is a God of just judgment. It might sound strange at first, really strange, but Christian, to the person who is numbered among God's people, these verses are comforting. Our God is a God of vengeance. He will not let evil run free forever, but he will judge with just judgment. So we see the Lord. Now we turn our attention and we look at Saul. And what do we see in Saul? Well, initially things look really good. What does Saul do? Well, he musters an army. He musters around 200,000 men, and then he takes his army, and he travels off towards the Amalekites. This is good. He's going to go meet the enemy, and then he lays a trap for the enemy, and he engages the enemy, and he routes the enemy, and he chases the enemy. Everything is looking good until we start hearing more reports from the battlefield. And as the reports come in from the battlefield, we get concerned because the text tells us there are a bunch of but statements. But Saul spared the king of the Amalekites, Agag. And then they also spared the best of the livestock and they kept them for themselves. And it becomes clear as we look at Saul revealed in this passage that he is a king not devoted to the word of the Lord. We see in Saul that he is a king that doesn't care about the vengeance of his God. So we see the Lord and we see Saul. And so this first cycle, the Lord speaking, Saul responding, prompts a second cycle. Because Saul disobeys the word of the Lord, the Lord has to keep on speaking. And we find the Lord speaking in the second cycle in verse 11. So the Lord's word is revealed to Samuel. The Lord says this, I regret that I have made Saul king, for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. So the first time the Lord spoke, he said, go strike Amalek. And we squirmed a bit. That's an uncomfortable command. And, and now a second time the Lord speaks, he says, I regret that I have made Saul king. And we're surprised. And we should be surprised about this. Just think about the God who speaks in verse 11. He is the Lord. He is the God who created heaven and earth. He is the sovereign king. He knows the end from the beginning and everything in between. And he looks here at Saul and what Saul has done, how he has turned away from his word. And the Lord says this, I regret that I have made Saul king. And it's important that we sit on verse 11 and we meditate on it and we deal with it. What are we seeing of the Lord here? Well, we see that the Lord finds no delight. The Lord finds no pleasure in the disobedience of Saul. And sometimes we're tempted to think that the Lord is up in the heavens and he's like this cold slab of granite. There's all this sin, there's all this suffering, there's all this trouble down here on earth and none of it bothers him. It just bounces off of him, unchanged. Here we get a moving picture of the Lord, don't we? Saul has forsaken the Lord. Saul has refused to be the Lord's disciple. Saul has refused to humble himself and carry out the commands of the Lord. And what does the Lord say? 
I regret that I have made Saul king. The Lord is grieved about Saul. And as we think about this truth revealed here in verse 11, this truth is revealed throughout the Scriptures. So if you go back to the book of Genesis, Genesis chapter 6, right before the, the great flood, right before the Noah's story, the Lord looks down on the earth and he sees sin and wickedness abounding and growing strong. And what does the Lord say? Genesis 6 verse 6, the Lord says, The Lord regretted that he made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. And as we think about what we see in Genesis and what we see in our text, the truth about God is amplified and intensified in the New Testament. In the New Testament, we meet the Lord Jesus, and the Lord Jesus is God in flesh. And what we see of Jesus is true of God. And in Jesus, we, we find God's heart revealed. Jesus had a ministry of grief in so many ways. We think of so many different scenes in Jesus' ministry. He, he goes to the tomb of Lazarus, and there his friend has died. And outside of the tomb, what does Jesus do? He, he weeps. That's grief. Jesus goes to his hometown, and they, they refuse him. Jesus is grieved by it. Jesus ministers to Jerusalem. He, he teaches and he preaches in the temple day after day, and they do not receive him or his gospel. And what does Jesus do? He laments over the city. And as we look here, we find a God who grieves over sin. And the clouds part, and here in verse 11, we can see God for who he is, a God who grieves over the sin and unfaithfulness of Saul. And the text of Scripture begins to question us in light of this. The text asks, do you have a heart like God's? Does your heart grieve over sin? In fact, it gets more acute. The, the text asks, do, do you actually grieve over your own sin? And these are questions that have to be asked of Saul as well. Will Saul be grieved over his sin? We've seen that Saul has sinned. So what will Saul do with his sin? Well, the text begins to carry us forward. After crying out to the Lord all night... What a moving scene to think about. Samuel's crying out to the Lord all night over what he's realized about Saul. He gets up early to meet Saul, and he, he travels. And when he finds Saul, something really interesting takes place. Before Samuel can say anything, before a word can get out of, of Saul's mouth, or Samuel's mouth, Saul speaks first. And just listen to Saul speak to Samuel. He says this, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And so you get this, this scene. Saul is like running out. He's, he's happy to meet Samuel. He's got swagger in his step. He, he's joyful. He's triumphant. And here we get to see into the heart of Saul. Not only is he a liar, but these words reveal the heart of Saul. He has broken the commandment of the Lord. And he's joyful and he's triumphant about it. We look into the heart of Saul, and there is no grief over his sin. And so we're moving through these cycles. God is a God of vengeance. Saul doesn't obey the word of God. Who is God? God is a God of grief. And Samuel, or Saul, is not a king who grieves over his sin. And finally, we move on to the third cycle. And this third cycle is, is a messy cycle. There's a lot of back and forth to it. The Lord speaks through Samuel, and then, then Saul responds, and there's messy to it because, because Saul attempts to play the part of a defense lawyer. 
The word of the Lord is encroaching in upon Saul, and Saul tries his best to minimize and redirect and reflect and refute what, what Samuel is saying on behalf of the Lord. And so there's back and forth. Saul is fighting with the word of the Lord. And so we can just follow along. Saul speaks, picking up the story in verse 13. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And then Samuel responds, he says, verse 14, Well, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I, I hear? So Samuel's like, I don't need to be much of a detective here, but it seems like you haven't carried out the command of the Lord. I can hear the sheep. I can hear the oxen. And so Saul puts on his lawyer hat, and he needs to put on his lawyer hat. It's obvious that the command of the Lord has not been carried out in its totality. And so what does Saul do? Well, he plays the oldest trick in the book. He, he points away from himself, and he points to his army. Verse 15, he says, They brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. But Samuel is not pleased at all with anything that Saul is saying, and so he pushes more. Verse 19, why then did you not, did not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? So Saul is stuck. He's really stuck. And what can you do when you're stuck? The accusation's coming in. You, you know it's, it's right, but you want to defend yourself? Well, Saul just doubles down on his logic. Verse 20, just notice how Saul speaks. He says, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission which the Lord sent me. I brought Agag, the king of Amalek. I have devoted the destruction of the Amalekites to destruction. So Saul stressing himself, I have done it, I have obeyed. Can't you see it? And then he points his finger again at his people. But the people took the spoil, sheep, oxen, the best of the things, and devoted them to destruction, of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. So what do we see? We see that Saul is stuck in his lies. And he refuses to leave his lies behind. He keeps insisting upon his obedience. He keeps pointing his finger at the people. But none of it works. None of it works. And so Samuel gets even more direct. And as Samuel gets more direct, his words just fall out of his mouth and they start to pummel Saul. Samuel asks Saul a question, verse 22. Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? What does the Lord really delight in, Saul? Think about it. And Samuel answers his own question. Verse 22, Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. What does the Lord really care about? He cares about obedience more than anything else. And what does this mean for you, Saul? It means that you're condemned. Look, verse 23, Rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption as iniquity and idolatry. Saul, you have not obeyed the Lord, not even a little. What are you? You are a rebel. You've committed iniquity. Your sin, it's compared to that of witchcraft and idolatry. And then Samuel finishes off with this mighty blow. He strikes Saul with his words. He says, because you've rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. So there's this back and forth. It's a conversation between the Lord and Saul. And as we think about it, this is a really frustrating conversation to listen to. Saul refuses to heed the word of the Lord, and he keeps deflecting, 
keeps shifting blame. But here in the midst of this conversation, we see something of the Lord, don't we? We see that this God is a God who demands obedience. And again, the clouds part for us. Here is a God who demands obedience of his people. And it just comes through in the text throughout this conversation again and again and again. What does the Lord delight in? He delights in a people who listen to his voice and do what he says. What does the Lord really desire? Does he desire the best parts of sacrifices? Or does he desire a heart that loves to do what he says? This God delights in obedience and demands obedience, and he rejects those who reject his word. And as we think about it, this is the same God we meet today, a God who demands the obedience of his people. This is our God. So the clouds part and we see God for who he is, a God who demands obedience, our obedience. And then we turn back to Saul. And it's clear that Saul has not obeyed the voice of the Lord. He hasn't done it. He's been rejected. And we need to pause here. We need to ask a question. Why did Saul disregard the word of the Lord? Why did he do this? This is important to camp out and think about this because the text offers us four reasons. And as we work through these four reasons, what the text does is not only exposes Saul's heart and how his heart worked in the matter of this disobedience, but the text exposes how our hearts work when we're disobedient to the Lord. And what we can do is we can take the story of Saul and we can start to see our own lives, our own hearts in it. And the text invites us to enter into the story of Saul and see how we disobey the word of the Lord. So there's four reasons. So why did Saul disobey? First reason. Saul disobeyed because he feared man more than he feared God. Verse 24, Saul says, I have sinned, I have transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words, why? Because I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Remember back to verse 1, what does, what does Saul need to do? He needs to obey the voice of the Lord. But what did he do here? Well, he obeyed the voice of his army. And why did he obey the voice of his army? Because he feared his army. He feared his army. There's more of a gravitational pull in Saul's heart with his army than, than with the Lord. And so what his army wanted, that's what Saul did. And he was not going to stand up and push against them. And so we disobey the Lord when we fear man more than God. Second reason. Saul disobeyed the Lord because he found more pleasure in meat than in God. Saul disobeyed the Lord because he found more pleasure in meat than in God. Look at verse 9. Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. The author uses words of quality here, good and worthless. And so here's Saul, before him are worthless animals, and what does he do with them? Well, he destroys them as the Lord commanded. And why can he destroy them so easily? Because they're worthless. Who cares about these worthless animals? They're easy to offer up to the Lord. But Saul turns and he looks and he sees what? He sees livestock that are good. He looks at these livestock and says, they could enrich me and enrich my, my people. 
We could have a great feast in the presence of the Lord. We could offer these things up as peace offerings. We give a little bit to the Lord and the rest of the animals for us. We have a big party. So here is Saul. And why does he disobey? Because he looked at the meat and he said, that looks better than God. Why do we sin? Well, we can replace meat with anything else because we look at something and we say, that is better than God. Third, Saul disobeyed because he was more concerned about the reputation of his name than the reputation of his God. And so in verse 12, we get this really odd piece of information. The narrator is giving us information about the journey of Samuel when Samuel goes to find Saul. And so in verse 12, it says this, Saul came to Carmel, and behold, he set up a monument for himself. And as readers, that strikes us as odd because we've heard about the conclusion of battles before. After another battle, what did Saul do? He set up an altar and he sacrificed to the Lord. After another battle, earlier in the book, what did they do? They set up a stone, an Ebenezer stone, and they said, up until this point, the Lord has helped us. And what does Saul do here in verse 12 after beating the Amalekites? He sets up a monument, not for Yahweh, but for himself. And this is telling us something about Saul's heart. What did Saul really care about in this battle? Oh, he really cared about his own reputation. You see, kings in the ancient world, when they would win a battle, they would set up monuments, and they would write about the battle, and they would often exaggerate what happened, and it would be a way to brag on yourself. It was like ancient social media. You'd set up the monument, and everybody could see how, how great you are. And we get to see into Saul's heart. Why did he sin? Well, ultimately, his heart was consumed with his own reputation, and all of a sudden, carrying out the vengeance of the Lord and carrying about the Lord's vengeance and reputation was not so important for him. And there's a fourth reason. And all of these reasons build up to this fourth reason. This is the ultimate reason for why Saul sinned. Saul disobeyed because he was ruled by another God. Verse 23. So Samuel speaking to Saul, he says, Rebellion is as, is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Just think about those words. Samuel's speaking to Saul, and he compares Saul's sin to the greatest sin you can find in the book. And what's the greatest sin in the book of Scripture? Well, it's turning away from God and serving another God. Samuel says to Saul, you're an idolater. And if we read the story, we ask, well, what God did Saul serve? We don't see him turning after any of the foreign gods around him, like Baal or Anastroth. Well, who does he serve and worship? Well, it's the God called Saul. He worships his own will, not the will of the Lord. Why do we ultimately sin? Well, we ultimately sin because we are ruled by another God, most often the God of self. And so all of these cycles come to a conclusion. And throughout these cycles, we've been learning about Saul. We've been learning about the Lord. And in the Lord, we see all sorts of things. He's a God of vengeance. He judges the Amalekites for their sin. He's a God of grief. He grieves over Saul for his sin. And above all, this God is a God who demands obedience. And then there's this guy, Saul, and, and we've looked long and hard at Saul, and when we've looked at Saul, this whole process hasn't been enjoyable. In fact, it hasn't been enjoyable since chapter 9 when we first met him. 
And here in this chapter, he doesn't carry out the vengeance of the Lord. He doesn't delight in obeying the Lord. He doesn't mourn over his sin. He doesn't want to deal with it. He just reflects it and deflects it and moves it away from him. And so what happens to Saul? He's rejected by the Lord, and rightly so. But we need to put ourselves in the shoes of Israel for a moment. Here's Israel. Here's their king. And now he's rejected by the Lord. What would this mean for Israel? Well, this would have been troubling and troubling for a lot of reasons. Israel's now put into a bind. Who's going to lead them? What king is going to save them? Who's going to deliver them from their enemies? Who's going to give them guidance into what is good and right and and true? And we can think about the chapter from our own perspective, too. We've been dealing with the Lord. We've been looking at Saul, thinking about our own hearts. And we ask, well, is there any gospel for us from this chapter? Any sort of good news? What about my sin? What about my disobedience? Well, there is good news. There is gospel right in the passage. Look at verse 28, verse 29. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you this day and has given it to a neighbor of yours who is better than you. And also the glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that he should have regret. We find the gospel in these two verses. And I want to tease out three pieces of the gospel that come out of Samuel's mouth as he judges Saul. The first piece of good news is this. Saul is disqualified as king forever. There's no repentance that Saul can perform. There's no tears he can shed that can get Saul back into this kingship. That sounds really harsh, really scary. But as we think about it, and as we think about it from the perspective of Israel, this is precious good news. God will not allow his people to be led by Saul or a Saul-like king. God is not content to have a disobedient man rule over his people. And so what does the Lord do? He removes him, and there's no way that this disobedient king will come back and rule and reign over God's people. And God's people should celebrate. We have a good God. Second piece of good news. God has promised a better king. So the Lord does not only remove, but he also replaces So Saul is taken away, and he's going to be replaced by a better man. He's going to be replaced by by David. And as we study David in the coming weeks, we're going to find David, the man that we need. He's going to carry out the vengeance of the Lord against the Lord's enemies. We're going to find a man who, who weeps over sin. We're going to find a man who delights in obeying the Lord. And ultimately, as we think and look at David, we're not just going to think about David, but we're ultimately going to think about David's son, his great, great, great grandson, the Lord Jesus Christ. We need to see this. Brothers and sisters, God has set over you a perfect king. And that's true of us right now, right here. A perfect king reigns over each one of us, reigns over the whole church, the king that we need. And so what do we do as God's people? We celebrate, we're glad because God has given us the king that we need. And there's a third piece of news, and I think it's the best piece of news. The Lord is resolved to do this. Samuel says, The glory of Israel will not lie or have regret, for he is not a man that that he should have regret. 
And so we're humans, and as humans, we change our minds all the time. We, we make plans, but then something happens, and we change our plans. We, we do something, but we don't know the future. So we have all sorts of, of regrets when bad things happen to us. But the Lord is not like us. He is not like a man. And what has the Lord done? He has committed himself to remove Saul, and he will not turn away from that no matter what happens. And he has committed himself to raise up a David to rule and reign over God's people, a perfect king. And he will not turn away from doing that no matter what happens. And so what does this mean for us? Well, it means something glorious and good for us. If you are in Jesus this morning, hear this. God has committed himself never to turn back to give Jesus Christ to your soul. He is not like a man who will have regret or lie. He will give Christ to your soul. He has promised it, and we can bank on it. And it is true today and tomorrow and forever. Saul has been removed. David's great-grandson has come. And we are saved. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we rejoice in your gospel. You are a good God. You remove wicked kings and you replace them with a king that we need, with Jesus, your son. We pray, would you build our confidence this morning in your word, in your promise, that Jesus rules over us and he will never be taken away from us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.